My guest today on Mission Impact is Denisha Thompson. Denisha and I talk about what the drivers of impact are, the factors that contribute to toxic cultures within nonprofit organizations, and why it is often so hard to have conversations about communications and accountability. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. On this podcast, we explore how to make your organization more effective and innovative. We dig into how to build organizational cultures where your work in the world is aligned with how you work together as staff, board members, and volunteers. And all of this for the purpose of creating greater mission impact. Welcome. Welcome, Denisha. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Carol. It's wonderful to be here. So I'd like to start with a question of what drew you to the work that you do? What motivates you and what would you describe as your why? Okay, so um, I, uh, as you said, I'm Denisha Thompson. I am the founder of Four Impact Consulting. It is a consulting firm, a social impact firm that really is focused on what I call culture influencing organizational development. Um, as a Black girl born in the Bronx, New York, who um, now knows that they grew up quite um, very much so with a life of privilege. Um, Both of my parents were immigrants who came to this country who sent me to Catholic school and told me, get an education and that would solve all your problems. Um, But now as a Black woman and as an adult, I recognize kind of... um, the oppression and poverty and kind of just systemic injustice that I was surrounded by as a young person. Um, And I was given a lot of opportunities, which is why I was able in my adult years to start a firm. Um, But right out of college, I knew that something was different and I felt really called to giving back. One of my favorite sayings is to whom much is given, much is required. And I looked around me and a lot of the people who I grew up with in the Bronx had very different outcomes. And I got really curious about why that is. Why is it that we can grow up in very similar environments but have completely different outcomes? And so um, my very first job was at a case man- as a case manager in a homeless shelter. And that was transformative for me. It was where I really began to learn about systems, where I began to learn about the isms, um, and began to see kind of just how difficult some people have it in spite of, quote unquote, doing everything right. Um, and, 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 you know, I was very lucky and, and really worked hard, but moved up in the nonprofit sector quickly. I have sat at every level of a nonprofit from direct service to supervisor to senior management. I've been the chair of a nonprofit board. Um And really now know 10 years later after starting my firm that while well-intentioned and um, well-meaning, the whole nonprofit system is broken. And nonprofit organizations often find themselves perpetuating the same systems that they're trying to dismantle. And so um, one of the things I think is like the through line in that is culture. And if you have... Um, a nonprofit with this great mission. I usually work with direct service nonprofits and they want to do these great things in communities, change indicators, 
that are plaguing communities, um, really tackle longstanding problems. Um, you can't have a love for a community, but then internally don't treat each other well. Internally have a toxic culture, internally have an oppressive culture or one where communication and diversity and having tough conversations is val is value isn't valued. And so what I found is oftentimes I would do strategic planning, for example, with a nonprofit, and they would say things like, This has been our third strategic plan, and the other ones didn't work. And it's like, well, why not? What's the real issue around why you are not reaching the impact that you hope? to have both in communities and kind of internally as a team. And again, the through line of that is culture. You know, you need to have a culture that is going to allow you to get to the impact that you want, to be able to grow um, organizationally, to be able to support your staff so that they are able to do good work. And so that's why I do what I call culture influencing org development. In short, I help nonprofits get it together. Get your stuff together. These communities cannot wait for you to figure it out for you to you know, have these tough conversations and learn how to work better together so that you actually can achieve the type of impact that everyone is working so hard to achieve on a daily basis. There's so many things I wanna follow up with uh, on, that, on what you just said. Um, first, yeah, just uh, certainly as I have come up and you know, thinking about my trajectory in the sector, um, become more and more aware of all the privilege boxes that I definitely check in terms of my identities and kind of where that situates me. But um, one thing that really struck me from what you were saying is kind of the sense that the nonprofit sector is broken. And I think what m was my catalyst for sh shifting my focus into organization development and kind of why don't organizations work like I think they should? And why don't people work together? You know, why are they getting in their own way? Um, was that same um, discrepancy or kind of cognitive dissonance between these really ambitious and wonderful and um, sometimes just well-intentioned, sometimes really grounded missions that, that organizations wanted to have for the change that they wanted to see out in the world and then not seeing that mirrored inside the organization or actually even, you know, opposite of that, like, you know, totally not living the, you know, embodying the values that they want to have other people embody somewhere else, but not embodying them uh, internally. So yeah, that, that was definitely my catalyst as well. Yeah, and I will say, you know, it's not for lack of trying. Sure. I think nonprofits often, like I said, are well-meaning. They are full of people who really believe in what they're doing and want to see the change that their mission is really driving. Um, and, and so at, my company wasn't always called for impact consulting. Um, it was initially called Rent an Expert because I wanted to connect um, expert consultants with the right nonprofit projects so that it was a win-win situation. Um, and then after doing work for so long, people were like, we don't want to work with other experts. We want to work with you. And so it was Denisha Thompson LLC for a while. Um, but what I recognized um, is that it is really important to think about what the drivers of impact are. And for our company, we see them as being four very specific things that, you know, if you work on one, that's great. But if you work on all four, you actually can move the needle 
and get to meaningful change. And so those impacts or those four pillars are leadership. Um, and that's tied to like executive coaching and making sure you have strong leaders who are positioning themselves to learn and grow um, and be responsive to the needs of their team. It's around team professional development. So no more just sending one person to training and thinking they're gonna come back and change the entire organization. But how do we learn and grow together as a team so that we're rowing in the same direction? It's around communication. How do we create the environment to have really tough conversations, important conversations, brave conversations, so that we are respecting each other and sharing and allowing kind of the brilliance of our diversity to rise to the top. And then finally, strategy. What does our strategic planning look like? Do we have a North Star? Do we have a clear set of goals and targets that we're all working towards? And so what we try to do is really help organizations think about all four and whether or not you are hiring us for one service or all four services, we really think that together by doing those, um, you know, really thinking about those four pillars and, and being active around them, you can build the type of culture you need to make the impact that you want. And so when we influence culture, we think unless you really be taking a concerted effort to think about all four of those pillars and thinking about how they work together collectively at your organization, it's why people will say, well, we've done coaching, it didn't work. Or we've done, um, we had a mediator come in and that hasn't helped. Or we've done some training, we've sent our leadership team to training and we did a retreat, but it's still not working. Or this is our third strategic plan and the other two were not successful. It's like, yeah, because are we thinking about this as a collective, as four things that we are kind of working on um, together to really influence the culture of the organization? Yeah, I love how you break that down because, um, you know, in the work that I do, I'm, I'm primarily focused in on, on that strategic planning aspect, but always want to come at it from a team perspective. So really engaging, you know, all staff, board in that process. Um, hopefully, you know, helping people have conversations that with people that they might not normally be interacting with. Um, so a lot of those things, but I always think of the strategic plan as, and that whole process as kind of in service of the rest of it and not a one and, you know, the one thing that's going to, you know, mean success or, or, or not success. I think it's important, but I think it's, it's part of a bigger picture like you're talking about. Indeed. Yeah. So um, you talked about uh, culture influencing and um, you talked about kind of the, the, the toxic cultures that can often emerge in nonprofit organizations and also, you know, said people aren't trying to create these, you know, it's not out of usually out of maliciousness or anything. It's, it's, you know, they're very well intentioned and what would be, and I'm sure it's by, you know, each organization obviously is, is individual and, and, and has its own set of circumstances. But in your experience, what are some things that contribute to that and, um, perhaps make it more prevalent. I don't know whether it's more prevalent. I don't know that anyone's done the study, but I think maybe some, some part of it for me at least is that when you're in the sector and you're wanting to um, work for an organization that is driving towards a mission beyond profit, 
a mission that that's designed to you know in your estimation make some positive change in the world you also hold your organization to a higher standard um, in terms of how it treats everybody and and how that culture is created but i'm curious for you what are some of the things that are kind of common traps perhaps right so there are lots of feeders of what i would say create toxic cultures particularly in the nonprofit sector um and you know there's no one size fits all there's no one type of nonprofit so whether we're thinking about service organizations or we're thinking about philanthropy or we're thinking about you know think tanks there's lots of different makeups of nonprofit orgs but at the heart of it it usually is a set of people that are trying to tackle a problem. And what I say is nonprofits are made up of humans, right? Um, and in the business sector and like the, the private sector, when you are driven towards profit, there's like a very clear North Star, right? Like, are we making more money? Are we, are we building our customer base? Whatever that is. And in a nonprofit, you often have people who are really passionate about the mission, which then makes it hard um, and what I say is you can't, like people say, leave your personal self at home and like just come to work. That doesn't work in the nonprofit sector. Whether you are working on issues related to poverty or education or homelessness or, you know, especially with service orgs, we're often looking at places where people care a lot and their passions drive how they show up. So that's one thing. Just like the idea of people who love the work, are passionate about it and really come in with their own um, personal perspective around how the work should be done. The other thing is, you know, unlike some other sectors, there's a lot of diversity in terms of experience and education in the nonprofit sector. And so you have people with all different types of backgrounds, not necessarily humans-oriented backgrounds that come in and then, you know, either lead at nonprofits or are part of nonprofits. So everything from lawyers to, you know, um, MBAs to human services professionals to social workers, all of which have their own code of ethics. So their own way of approaching how you show up at work. And I think oftentimes what happens is that nonprofits are not always good about de declaring the lane that they're in, the expectations they have, the shared values that you have that is going to drive your work. And so you have people with all these different educational backgrounds who are coming in, have learned different ways of approaching problems, and then the nonprofit doesn't do the internal development to say, well, we're a values-driven organization. These are our values. This is how we embody them. And these are the expectations we have of the people who work here, not only of how we treat communities, but how we treat each other and how we speak to each other. So there's that. Then there's always like the stretch too thin. You know, funding is a difficult thing to come by nowadays. There's a lot of competition out there for it. And so while we're not businesses, we often operate through a business lens that then becomes places that aren't always connected to our values and embodying values and are just chasing contracts, chasing dollars, treating clients and participants like another number and really putting pressure on staff without actually supporting them to do the type of difficult work they do on a daily basis. And then finally, I would say power. Depending on whether you're a small nonprofit or a huge nonprofit um, and how the systems of hierarchy work within your nonprofit, um, as nonprofit organizations, we're often trying to reorient power in communities. 
and to think about how we think about self-determination, how we promote that, how we promote communities being part of the solution. And then we don't do that internally. You may have a group or a committee who holds the power, who holds the influence, and then makes lots of decisions for people who don't feel like they can actually be a part of it. So it just becomes adversarial in terms of internal operations. And oftentimes the people who are closest to the, the members of the community who you're trying to work with and for are the people who have the least amount of power, the least amount of influence. And so then resentment builds. And you know, people say things like, I feel like a hamster on the wheel, or I feel like we're not really tackling the problem, or we know what the problem is, but we can't talk about it openly here, or they're gonna do whatever they want, so now I'm just showing up for a check. Or people are not paid really well. People who are closest to the ground, case managers, people who are doing difficult work in communities are not paid very well, are often to check themselves away from needing some kind of service or help. And so it just isn't a space that um, promotes wellness oftentimes um, for staff to be well, for staff to be um, in a good space to do the type of emotional, passionate, difficult work that it requires. And so those things, collectively together, depending on what happens at a specific nonprofit, often breeds a culture where communication is not valued, like honest, clear, open communication at all levels, where feedback loops aren't really happening. Um, and there isn't time. You hear a lot of, we didn't have time for training. We don't have time to do this meeting. We don't have time to get together and do team building. We don't have time to resolve the conflict. Um, and so it becomes a place where turnover is high. And rather than build culture, you think we're just gonna move the chairs around, do a little bit of musical chairs, switch out the people and things will get better. And so I know that was a lot, but there are a lot of different, it just goes to show there are a lot of different ways to get to a toxic culture. And my work is regardless of how we got here, let's try to do a good assessment to understand what the landscape is and why we are where we are. And then let's kind of, as a team, collectively, through leadership, through communication, through training, through real strategic, you know, deep strategic planning, think about how we can build a better culture that helps us work better together and, and restore good relationships so that the toxicity is reduced and kind of good team work is elevated. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, just talking about the kind of the passion and thinking about, um, yeah, most people will end up at an organization because of something in their past or some connection that they have to the issue um, that leads them there. Or even, um, you know, I know for myself, just thinking about my trajectory, it wasn't necessarily, um, you know, I have a I have a, a older brother who has a disability, and so I didn't end up in the disability. Um, arena, a lot of siblings do, um, but I think that was part of what, what uh, motivated me to step into the nonprofit sector and seeing all those um, systems. But and, and then the other thing that you were talking about in terms of professional backgrounds, I hadn't even really thought about that, of each, each profession having its own code of ethics, its own um, kind of way that it sees the world, right? And what it thinks is, is good practice or not good practice. And all of those kind of value systems clashing in, in, in addition to the individual value systems clashing. And then I also think of, you know, that, that 
we don't have time. We don't have time for team building. We don't have time for training. You know, it our the issue that we're working is so pressing. We have to be focused on that 100% of the time. And so folks who ended up in leadership positions may probably ended up because they were good at one of those things that the organization did. They were, you know, great at advocacy or great at service or great at program development and may have had no um, training or development around what it actually means to be a leader. And then um, <laughs> you, you, you threw a lot at me, so I've just like had so many different thoughts of, uh, to, to think about. But also the fact that in so many organizations, while the organization and its mission wants to disrupt those power dynamics, and yet the models that we have, and even the models that are built into how nonprofits are structured from a, you know, as a not-for-profit corporation, um, really just mirror the same hierarchy and, and same power systems that we see everywhere else. And so how do you, how do you start questioning that? And what I also appreciate the way that you kind of um, elaborated on what you mean by communication, because so often when I'm doing that kind of organizational assessment that you talk about that, that'll happen for me at the beginning of a strategic planning process, people name, well, communication is, you know, we need to improve communication. And my question is always, in what way? What, what I always feel like there's many things behind the label communication that are actually other things, but some of the things that you talked about of just that capacity to have open and brave conversations um, is is often lacking and people need, need skill building in those areas. Few people, at least in my experience, got taught how to do that at home. Yeah, it's one of the things, um, I was just recently talking to a client about the word accountability because it's the same thing or like really similar to communication where, you know, people want members of their team to be accountable for the things they're supposed to do. And when accountability doesn't happen, it hurts trust, but it's also a really hard thing to have that conversation around, right? Like people are saying, this is my job and I can be responsible for this, but when things go wrong, owning up to it and, and being able to recognize how whatever you didn't do impacted your team is a really scary thing. We are not, um, our culture and just kind of as humans, we are defensive beings. We are not bred to really, to, to be public about accountability. You may feel bad <laughs> internally, but to actually come out and say, you know what, I screwed this up, I'm sorry, or I had a bad day and I didn't show up. Those things are not valued. We actually have a very punitive approach to how we deal with people not doing what we need them to do. And that's very present in the nonprofit um, sector. While we talk about things like restorative justice and we talk about things like healing and bringing people together and, and build, building bridges, these are all terms we hear around the sector a lot. We don't really create mechanisms internally for people to feel safe to do that. And so what ends up happening is that we have um, lots of teams who are individuals just to try to escape accountability because I don't want to be written up. I don't want a bad performance review. I don't want to be othered or, or to be rejected and feel like I don't belong. It is a really difficult, difficult thing to, to be accountable to your team. And so part of that is like, I tie that in with communication because what we want to do is to normalize like imperfection. No one's perfect. 
We all make mistakes. We all have bad days. We all have had times where we were supposed to do something and we didn't. And so how can we practice grace on our team and really offer grace to people in the way we would want people to be graceful to us when we make a mistake or we don't show up or we had something personal or we um, were, or, or, or our lived experience came into play in a way that didn't allow me to be really objective in this moment, right? And so I think, um, you know, oftentimes I say in the nonprofit sector, we do things that are really dehumanizing. Thing, and what I mean by that are things that are kind of natural human emotions, like being fearful of getting in trouble or, you know, um, not being honest because you don't know what the repercussions are or it may impact your ability to be promoted um, or saying, I'm not ready to be a supervisor. I know I've been here 15 years, but I don't really have any leadership development or supervisory skills, right? Like the idea of leadership, supervision, and management being three different things, they're words people use interchangeably. And so sometimes people are promoted into positions that they're really not equipped to do. And being able to say, you know what, I really want a promotion, but this job's not for me, it's not, are not muscles we massage. And so that's why, again, I talk about culture so much, because you have to build a culture where we normalize those uncomfortable things, where we normalize people being fearful. And we say, we know, but we want to create a system where we can be honest, we can be transparent. And it's not gonna happen overnight, but how do we build trust with each other? How do we start having those things and putting systems in place and taking baby steps towards normalizing the things that people are often running from? And things like communication, accountability, um, really being able to declare when you're not ready for something or when you've hurt someone's feelings, being able to like go beyond not just the I'm sorry, because I'm sorry doesn't solve everything, are really important skills that need to be taught. You're not born with that. Um, and if you don't practice it, it's like anything, you lose the muscle for it. And so it's really about kind of consistently building in opportunities for teams to be vulnerable with each other to, in order to build trust, which we all know is like the foundation of having a really strong team. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, I'm thinking back to a program that I was involved in um, where it was a, a, you know, a new executive director, um, CEO uh, program, leadership development program. And I would say that the number one, you know, we, we did a lot of the kind of, more structural stuff here, you know, working with your board, um, roles and responsibilities, uh, that kind of thing. But the crux of the issue that people were, I felt like had the most fear around was actually um, giving feedback to employees, having those um, challenging conversations. Um, and even to the point where uh, I was just on a, a call this morning and someone was reflecting the fact that in this organization, none of their leadership team ever gets a, a, any kind of performance evaluation. And then thinking back to my career in organizations, and I would say there was only one that was a larger organization that had any kind of regular system for that. So, you know, it may not, it may not need to be a formal um, evaluation system, but what, how are you building those feedback loops so that people have a sense of how they're doing and, and then also can, you know, can, have a space to have those conversations 
about um, what's going well and and what isn't and it isn't and so you know those check-ins aren't always like a performance of these are all the awesome things I did last week. <laughs> Carol, you just hit the nail on the head. Can I just tell you this is like one of the main conversations that I have at nonprofit organizations where we have. Um, especially when I talk to supervisors and then leaders are another topic. I'll come to that in a second. But the idea of um, constructive feedback versus constructive criticism, Mm. right? And like what role does evaluations and kind of supervision play in that? Feedback should be happening constantly. We should not just be waiting until something goes wrong to have conversations around um, how we can do better. And in supervision, it shouldn't just be like a check-in, like you said, around like, well, this is what we have in the calendar, this is what we're doing. I always say to um, to supervisors, if you are not, sh- if someone is seeing something for the first time on the performance review, you have failed, right? Right. You have plenty of opportunities between evalu- annual evaluations to share your feedback. And it doesn't always have to be in the form and it should not be in the form of criticism. You don't want to be criticized. Like that does not feel good. What this should be is like, how can we grow? How can we do better? Um, And so there is um, opportunity every single day to provide feedback. And you should be also saying as a supervisor, how can I support you, right? Like, what do you need from me to be able to do these things? So feedback doesn't just go from the top down. It should also be able to go from the bottom up for a staffer to say, okay, I hear you. These are the things you'd like me to do but here's the support that I need or the resources I need to get that done. So number one, feedback should be in a 360. It should go all the way around. Um, Everyone should be providing feedback on a regular basis and feedback's different from criticism. We really should try not to criticize because that feels so personal and traumatic for so many people that that starts to lead to toxic work cultures and then people hiding from accountability. So that's one piece of it. The other piece is around leadership. And that's why in my four pillars, we start with leadership. I always say the tail follows the head. And while it may not follow in a straight line behind the head, it might be like a little wiggly behind, it's not gonna be going in the opposite direction. And so leadership is so, so, so important in building a culture. And what I say, you know, when I do coaching with executives, you know, we, I really try to work to create environments where people can be honest and vulnerable. And what I've heard from so many leaders is, is like, you know what? I know I'm not, I know that I have room to grow, but it can be really isolating as a leader to get the type of support that you need. So who are you surrounded by? You have your staff who work for you and, you know, you're supposed to know what you're doing. And so you don't really want to be vulnerable with them and say, you know what? Um, folks, I don't have this, so I'm not sure about this. I don't really have experience in this area. I'm not really sure what to do. No leader wants to tell their staff that they don't know what to do. Then you have your board who often is supervising you, right? So like, that's not necessarily the space where you also can be vulnerable and honest about your opportunities for growth. And then you have your colleagues who are other leaders of other organizations, and you definitely don't want to tell them most of the time that you don't have it all together. And so it becomes really hard for leaders to get the type of support that they need in order to be good leaders. And a part of that is also not creating systems to get feedback from your team around your leadership. And it is one of the most common things that I see that leaders are not getting evaluation and they're also not going to training. So they'll send everyone else to training, but they're not getting professional development. 
they're not getting coaching. They're not putting themselves in environments to really stretch and think beyond um, what they currently know. They're not learning new ways of knowing. And so it really, and, and then they think they're hiding. And what I try to help them understand is you're not hiding. Your staff see poor leadership. They might not have a space to tell you that they feel you're a poor leader, but this stuff has impact, right? Just like doing the coaching and getting good professional development can have a positive impact, not getting that also have the impact. And you're actually, you may be hiding from your board and you may be hiding from your clients or, or, your, um, or your colleagues. You're not hiding from your staff. Your staff are talking about you and talking about your poor leadership. And it would behoove you to really demonstrate that they are not the only ones who need to do better, that you as a leader also needs to do better. And I will tell you, in organizations where I have seen culture shift, where people talk about it being toxic and really being able to see where that switch happened, when they see their leadership taking it seriously and their leadership also having opportunities of vulnerability and being honest and saying like, here's the spaces where I need to grow, staff really buy into that because it no longer feels like it's this one-sided finger pointing, we just need to get better trained staff. They recognize that this is a team thing, an organizational thing, and we're all gonna work on it together. And so what you said resonates so much because leadership matters. It really, really does. Well, and I, I see that uh, finger pointing go, going both ways, right? Mm -hmm. Of staff um, in the break room, you know, venting about the leader, but that, that feedback not, not ending up. And I think the other thing that I, I noticed from that group, and I've certainly seen it other places, was that they, that they, the word feedback to them was synonymous with criticism. Right. Feedback was always negative. Like, I have to give someone feedback. Well, if you're giving feedback all the time, it can be both recognizing wins, recognizing the positive, and you know having constructive feedback as well and the other thing i think that that in terms of feedback that people um you know could could do with more practice and that's where the skill building really comes in is getting specific because i've you know worked for people who were like you're doing a great job it was awesome but it was like well what what was it that you saw that was you know particularly helpful that i could build on um but that two-way feedback and certainly um, those kinds of programs where people, where leaders can get a little more vulnerable with peers um, to be able to, or with coaching to, to you know, admit um, their growth edges is, is, really, is really key. I will just add that feedback isn't also just an outward thing. Sometimes feedback's listening, right? Like a right. key component of being able to give good feedback is to also listen and to hear and to synthesize that information and then to provide something back to the person that is actually actionable, that's meaningful. Mm -hmm. And to your point, that's really clear about a next step, right? And then also like has an opportunity for disagreement. Like we all come from our own perspectives and some things are clear cut, right? Like that was unsafe. Something that you did was unsafe or things like that. But things like you could do better, like that's subjective, right? Like how, how can I do better is the next question. Um, and because we are defensive beings, I think we also have to realize like we will personalize feedback. And so how can you give it in a way that feels positive and helpful and not just something that's gonna sting so badly that 
actually, I haven't been able to take that feedback in and I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm just going to be mad, right? Like now I just feel offended, particularly if it's coming in my performance review and we've had all these other opportunities to meet and you've never said this to me. And so I really do think it's incumbent on supervisors, managers, and leaders to build the muscle to do constructive feedback. Um, And again, even when it's about something that someone can feel is criticism, that the way you frame that feedback can have very different results in how someone receives it. And so this is not just about wounding people. And what I say is like the punitive approach to things in organizations, like that doesn't actually help people be honest. And so how do we get to a space where we create a culture of honesty? It has to be one that doesn't feel harmful to people. Yeah, absolutely. And and I and I remember you you talked about leaders, um, you know, thinking that they're that they're hiding X, Y, or Z, yeah. and and staff are in the break room talking about it. And um, it just makes me laugh because I I've, I've had a couple different instances where I've come into strategic planning and the executive director was getting you know maybe they were two years, maybe they were a couple years out from retiring. And they're like, I don't want to tell, don't tell anybody about this. And I'm thinking about that. I'm like, okay, so you're clearly in your 60s, 70s. This is not invisible to people. People are talking about this. Like, how long are you planning to be here? Uh, what's the trajectory? What's your plan? So, you know, that's just one, uh, one example. But um, this notion that, you know, they're keeping secrets is, is one that... Uh, is not helpful. So, I mean, I think feedback, learning how, you know, um, how to give feedback in a way that increases the likelihood that someone can hear it, right? I mean, you, you can't guarantee that, but there are ways to, to phrase things that, that are more likely for someone to be able to, to hear that. So what are some of the things, what's a practical, I mean, what would you say to someone in terms of, you know, um, getting better at providing feedback? Uh, what are some things that you that you talk to people about? So one of the things I say is, uh, is something you said earlier is that it should happen regularly um, and should not always be based in this is what went wrong, right? So it shouldn't also always just be about the individual person. Have we created opportunities to evaluate our work? Are we creating opportunities to evaluate the effectiveness of maybe a project or initiative or an event that we hosted? Um, Do we ensure that feedback, uh, when it's given, you also say things like, what can I do to support you in doing that? So that this person knows they're not on their own to just figure it out. Um, Definitely making sure that anything you put in a performance review has been discussed with someone so no one ever feels like the rug has been pulled out from under them. And then giving feedback directly to the person. I cannot tell you how many times there's like all this stuff swirling about a person and no one's actually told them. They've talked about it with their colleagues. They've talked about it with the leadership, maybe even talked about it with HR. And no one's talked about it with the person who is the subject of the conversation. And so some of it also requires like having a direct approach and making the commitment to say, I'm going to give you this feedback but I also want to hear back from you about how, how do you, one, how do you feel? That's one of the things that's like the biggest curse word sometimes in our sector is like, we don't care how people feel. We don't want to know how you feel. Well, no, actually we are a social service, human service sector. 
where feelings actually matter because it impacts people's actions. And if everyone feels really horribly, it's really hard to get them to do meaningful work, right? And so like, no, I hear you um, and getting opportunities for responses to the feedback and asking, again, the question around support. How can I support you in doing this? Um, I also think an opportunity for questions. I think sometimes people give feedback and there's no room to ask questions about like, how'd you get there? How'd you get, to, why did you make that decision? Um, and also almost like a little bit of coaching. What could you have done differently? Especially if it's something that the person may um, not, not feel great about. One of the things is thinking about, okay, so next time, what are some things we can try? Proactively developing strategies so that the next time someone's confronted with a, a similar issue, they don't have to figure it out on the fly. It's really helpful. And so I really think that in supervision, um, that should happen regularly and that organizations should really train their supervisors. That's another piece of it. I cannot tell you how many times I have done supervisor training and asked people who have been supervisors for five years, 10 years, oh, and they've never actually had supervisor training. And it shows, or organizations are not clear about their expectations of supervisors. So everyone's running their team like it's in their own little kingdom. Those are recipes for disaster and actually just increased risk and liability, right? At an organization, because it's hard to show consistency, which then people can use in a lawsuit to say this was discriminatory as opposed to this is what we're doing. And so with feedback, Regular and often, allow for questions and proactively plan things that you can try next time so you have some strategies and then check in. How did that go? What did it ha what happened? Um, how did you learn from it? Um, and again, how can I support you in ensuring this is something you're actually able to do and accomplish? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I, I was laughing when you described the swirl around people, because I feel like that's another common thing that people will do. They'll call someone like us, right? I want, I want to do team building or I want to do, you know, a board training or I'm rows and responsibilities. And once you start having the conversation of, okay, why? we're having a problem with this person. And then the next question I'll always ask is, well, have you had a conversation with that person? Well, no, not yet. Nope. <laughs> yeah. like, okay, well, we can talk, we can continue talking about training or team building or whatever it is. And you need to have the conversation. Yeah, I'll give you another quick example of how I can tell at an organization when there's a communication barrier. So. Oftentimes, someone will hire me and say, for example, I'm going to come in and do the strategic plan. And as a part of the strategic planning, like you, I do an org assessment to get us started. Um, and I always pride myself, it's similar to supervision and with the evaluation, that at the end, when someone gets their org assessment and you share it with the leadership and share it with the team, that it should feel familiar. It shouldn't feel like, like a bomb just dropped and there's all this new information. But oftentimes, the response that I get people get their org assessment and they'll read through it and they're like yeah we knew all of this and it's almost as if they're expecting it to be a document full of like secrets and things they didn't know and that says to me like these are issues that everyone knows about we know the landscape of where we are but we don't have a system for us to have that conversation which is why we had to hire a consultant to come in and tell us what we all already know and we could have elevated 
in a landscaping conversation if we just had a team that was able to communicate and talk to each other. And so it'll have like their assessment, it'll have recommendations, it'll have questions for further consideration. And I find oftentimes the staff are like, this is amazing. Like I've been saying this for years. And then the leadership is like, oh, we, we knew some of this, or, you know, it's good to see it, or you really captured our, our organization. And it's like, yeah, so did you really need this assessment? Or did you, right, like, could you have had these conversations and maybe dealt with some of these things internally before it rose to the level of being a complete issue right now? And so that's another way to show, like, Everyone is itching to talk to the consultant. I can't wait to talk to you as a part of this assessment. I want to tell you everything. And then I pulled together this report and everyone's like, yeah, we knew all this stuff already. It's like, yeah, why have you not been talking about it? What's the, where's the barrier that makes it so that the only way this rises to the level of something that we're going to deal with is if someone from the outside comes in and tells us. Like that is a huge indicator that you haven't set up systems of communication internally for your team to have important conversations that are meaningful to like the impact of your work. Yeah, absolutely. I have that that same experience of people kind of thinking that there's going to be a big reveal and then yeah. saying, well, no, really wasn't that much surprising. I think what they do find, what I have experienced is people find there's a sense of relief of yes. we are more on the same page than I thought. I thought I was over here having these, you know, thoughts myself and actually everybody else is is having those same thoughts but as you point out like why are they just thoughts why are they not conversations um so yeah so and then i mean i think sometimes it is helpful uh, any kind of process where you're working with um, a consultant or a coach or you know you have we have a system for doing that in a kind of methodical way that that um certainly organizations can do themselves. And I think it's helpful sometimes to have a shepherd really to kind of guide you through it. Um, so it's, it's both, but right, not to just wait every three years for that to happen. Right. If you're on a regular process for a strategic plan, for example, again, like the performance review, you don't have to wait for the three years. Um, and then in terms of the goals, I also, um, you know, if the goals are so far beyond what's been in the conversations, I, I also am like, I, I don't want any of these to be super like out of left field either, because it needs to relate to what you're already doing and what you're already good at. Right. That's the part that I actually find is the, the meaningful part of the strategic planning. Of course, all of it's meaningful. The landscape analysis is important, having some kind of assessment, um, because you need to reflect on the past in order to really build good goals and targets for the future. But I find that's the piece because I always say to groups, there's a hundred things we can do. Our goal in this process is to build alignment and find consensus around the best next set of things we can do. Okay. What is the thing that will help us when it comes to like operations, org development, programs and services? What's the right combination? It's putting together a puzzle. So you end up lifting all these ideas and then working together to really think about what's the right combination of pieces to get us, you know, further than where we are three years from now. And so that's the part that I think is really helpful for teams in the strategic planning process is building the muscle 
of being able to like learn from the past, think together, and then develop a plan that there is team alignment and cohesion around around next steps of like things that can move us forward. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we identified a lot of the problems with uh, nonprofit culture, and you talked about um, some of the ways that organizations can start um, stepping forward to, to build a more positive culture. What are some other things that you would say are really important as organizations and leaders want to get more intentional about building a healthy culture? Yeah, so one of the things I think is just kind of a real um, uh easy starting point is to think about how you embody your organizational values. And notice I use the word embody. I think all organizations have values, but when we think about, and what does that look like here? Those are questions that need to be answered. I think um, oftentimes organizations will list their values. And when you ask staff about what that looks like, um, or ask community members about what that looks like, that is not really clear. Or what is our organizational culture? I always define culture when I'm talking to groups because I, always, I use the term, like, it's like love. Everybody knows what it is, but if you try to define it, we're all going to have, there's 10 of us in this room, there'll be 10 different definitions. And so really trying to understand what the culture is. Like, that's an important kind of conversation to have. What do people think about our org culture? Is it healthy? Is it toxic? Just asking the basic question. I think another thing is to you know, really think about where do we have opportunities for us to connect and talk? And like, is there a space for us to, you know, put questions up somewhere that we actually have some kind of conversation and then an action around? So lots of conversations happen at nonprofits. And sometimes I'll hear things like, we've been talking about this for years, but there's no action tied to it. Um, so having conversations lead to action is a practice that you should have. Like, do not get stuck in analysis paralysis. Um, you know, and even like the term parking lot, when I do strategic planning, we don't do that. We don't use that term because people say things like the parking lot is where things go to die. So we use the phrase a runway. And I give the analogy like this is a plane and we're about to launch something with the strategic plan. What are the bumps on our runway that would keep us from a safe launch, right? From a successful launch. So identifying that, like, there's always a ton of things that we can work on, but what are the things that are really barriers to keeping us from having the type of culture that we want? And then finally, like, really the recognition that culture is everyone's job. It's not just the HR person's job. It's not just the job of the supervisor. It's not just like the DEI person's job. Like all of those things require all of us to be embodying the values as we have defined them. Um, and to make sure that everyone is contributing to trying to have a more positive and healthy work culture. And so defining what that looks like um, is what I do like with organizations to say like, what are our expectations of each other and how we work together? Um, and kind of just naming that and saying that we are also individually going to make our commitment around how we're going to contribute to this on a daily basis. So I tell people, let's get in touch with your shadow side because we all have one. It's never really the thing we're proud of stuff, but what happens is, is it shows up at work and your teammates see it 
And they don't know that. And so we do a lot of work around like, who am I as an individual? How do I show up? And how do I, when things come up, um, change my reflex so I am not automatically thinking about the external factor or the person who caused this thing or caused me to be frustrated, that my first instinct is to be reflective and think about like, how am I showing up right now? How did I contribute to this thing? How do I calm myself down so that when I do go to have this conversation, it can be productive and get us to a better place and not just be like a way for me to vent and, and or feel vindicated. So I think it really just takes a lot of intention. And I think, again, the number one thing um, that organizations can do is have a leader that says, like, this is meaningful work. I want us to have a healthy culture. And I, as a leader, am going to really lead this effort and participate in making sure we have what's necessary to get us there. What are your suggestions? Right? Like starting from the top, saying this is everyone's job, including mine. And this is what we're going to work on over, say, like the next year or however long it takes for us to have the types of conversations, get the type of training that we need, set up the systems so that we can be in a better place. This is no one person's fault. I think that's the other thing. We do a lot of blaming in the nonprofit sector. Um, We blame government, we blame communities, like we blame each other. How do we reduce the culture of blame and say that everyone has to have skin in the game, everyone needs to work on personal accountability, and everyone contributes to whether or not we have a healthy culture. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. Well, that leads me into my the last part. Of, on every episode, I, I play a little game where I ask a question um, from a box of icebreaker questions that I have. And um, the, the one, one of the ones that I pulled out today was um, kind of what's the, what's the life lesson or mistake that you keep on making over and over again and keep having to relearn? Um to protect my time. (laughs) I think I do not, um, because I I have some of the same things I talk about with nonprofits. I'm so passionate about my work um, that I work a lot and I don't always make time to like have joy, like true joy. I think I worry about clients, I worry about work, I worry about the world. And am I taking enough time to replenish my gas tank? right? Like, I feel like my work is exhausting. It's meaningful. It's hard work. I'm one of the lucky ones that my personal values and passion are very much connected to my pers- my professional values and passions. And how do I actually just sometimes take time to pause? And in spite of all of the crazy around me, like, experience joy, like, really, like, prioritize that Um, I think it would help me not feel so exhausted all the time and would actually help me just show up in life and be better to myself and get that good balance. I have a big vision board in front of me that I sit in front of every day. And one of um, 
the phrases on it is, or two of the phrases are get balance and rediscover pleasure. And they are reminders that I have to make to myself all the time. And I think it's something that's endemic in kind of our sector of people who are well-meaning, passionate, stretched really thin, always helping others and not really doing what's necessary to help themselves and replenish. So I would say that and asking for help because I think that's also important. Um, oh my goodness, you named my, my top two too. <laughs> <laughs> we seem to have something in common. So what what are you excited about? What's coming up for you? What's what What's emerging in the work that you're doing? So one of the things I'm very excited about is, you know, COVID changed things for a lot of folks. Um, I'm an adjunct professor, so I teach in the School of Human Services at Metropolitan College of New York. And I have been able to take that skill set and translate it into building a virtual classroom. And so I'm really excited about the launch of this virtual classroom that will be able to like help teams get professional development at the time and that it works for them. One of the biggest things in our sector is time. And so I'm really excited that the beta testers who are testing the classroom love it. It is gamified, it's incentivized, staff earn rewards and points um, for participating in professional development. And I love that it's not just based on one individual going to get training and thinking they're gonna bring that back to the organization. This really is built to cater to all different learning styles, to be training that sticks and to offer people rewards for like growing and building and doing better. And so I'm really excited for teams to learn together, participate in the discussion forums um, and really create something that's new that I think our sector needs, but is not out there. And I'm really happy to have like this real innovative way to help teams get the type of training and learning um, that they need to build better cultures. That's awesome. So you're, you're in beta now, um, let us know and we'll make sure to include all the information in the show notes uh, for this episode. Um, and and I, I love how you phrase it and, and you talked about it before of not just sending one person to training ex and expecting yeah. it to impact because what happens is people come back from that training all excited and then they run into the culture. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And, and so, yeah, so it's all or about they're not trainers. They're not facilitators. So it's like, well, okay, I got right. Training, or they go I to a training and no one can right. see my, my air quotes. And it's actually just listening to someone drone on. Right. Exactly. So they're not they're not actually getting to, to do skill development. But that yeah. sounds really exciting. And we will definitely um, include that information. I'm sure it will be a really, really rich resource for the sector. So thank you so much. And thank you again for coming on. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Carol. It's really great to spend some time with you today. I appreciated what Denisha said about feedback. When folks hear the word feedback, they usually assume it's feedback about something bad. or But feedback itself is neutral and needs to be frequent and specific for positive things and for things that need improvement. Too many organizations lock, lack any systems for providing performance feedback on a regular basis, starting with regular evaluations, to integrating feedback into regular conversations, and it can be challenging, is to be specific. Just telling me, great job, feels a little meaningless. What about it was great? Can you give me a, a specific example? 
Like, I appreciated when you spoke up in that meet last meeting and challenged us to think more about our new direction. Your questions were really thought-provoking and helped us slow down and not make that decision too quickly. This is specific positive feedback. And I appreciated Denisha's point that a culture that only provides criticism encourages people to hide from accountability and hide mistakes. They want to avoid being called out and avoid that sting. Yet things will go wrong and they need to be discussed too. How can you create space and create a safe space where it's safe to admit mistakes, that the discussion is focused on what we can learn from this and manage it, and or and or how to avoid it in the future that it's future oriented versus blame oriented and beyond the individual level how are you creating a learning culture where your work on a project program or initiative basis is also being regularly evaluated and not just whether folks like it or not enjoyed it or not but rather is it achieving the goals and objectives it was designed to produce and if not, what tweaks need to be made? Or what assumptions need to be rethought? Have you taken the time to map out what the assumptions are, the expected short, medium term, and long term outcomes are? Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Denisha, her full bio, the transcript of our conversation, as well as any link, links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I want to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as April Kuster of 100 Ninjas for her production support. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a colleague or friend. We appreciate you helping us get the word out. The easiest way to do that is to go to podlink, that's pod.link forward slash missionimpact, and you can share the podcast or any individual episode. And then your a colleague can listen on their podcast listening app that they regularly use. And until the next time, thank you for everything you do to contribute and make an impact.